CBSI on the world. I'm John Batchelor, Hotel Mars, episode N. David Livingston, Dr. Space himself of the Space Show is here, my colleague and co-host and co-pilot. And we're looking to the future and power needs on planet Earth. Renewables are adequate. However, the real renewable is the most important star in the cosmos. That's our sun. We watch it for sunspots. We watch it for beach activity. We certainly watch it to sustain our life. Can we watch it for energy? David and I are very happy to welcome John Mankins. He's the author of the forthcoming new second edition of The Case for Space Solar. John, a very good evening to you. This is exciting. David is way ahead of me. He's talked about this for some time. I have not. So we do some definitions, John. What is space solar? What does that mean? What does it describe? Good evening to you. A very good evening to you. So uh, space solar power is the idea of harvesting solar energy in space near the Earth, where the intensity of sunlight is some 40% greater than the intensity on this on the clear summer day here on Earth because there's no atmosphere, and then transforming that solar energy in space into electrical power and from electrical power into radio frequency uh, energy and then transmitting it in a coherent, low-intensity beam from space to markets here on Earth. That's it. Wow. David? Um, John, um, how, how technologically ready are we to do this today? So professionally, I would ask you what your TRL is, but uh, just are we, are we capable of doing this or do we still need innovation? So un- unlike other really breakthrough uh, energy ideas, like, for example, fusion, um, the basic physics of solar power satellites, i.e. the systems that would do space solar power, have been around since the 1960s. So all the basic physical discoveries have been made for decades. And during the past uh, 40 or 50 years, it's really just been a question of the cost, the economics of the systems. So we've been we've been at the level of physics and laboratory demonstrations, even some field demonstrations for many, many years. And now it's uh, just in the last 10 years that we've moved to the point where the uh, technologies to make the costs manageable are at hand. So it's we're very much ready to go. I'm looking right now at a write-up in Science Magazine having to do with costs, but I want to focus on the, on the infrastructure here. What, what I'm looking at in your excellent book is a diagram of a satellite, an elaborate affair. It looks something like a blooming daffodil, and it's to catch the sun's rays, and that I take it at some point, it beams it down to Earth, and this would be in geosynchronous orbit, so it would always be at the same place. What is receiving it on Earth? I understand the sunlight, the solar, the beam, but what does it hit down there, John? So a wonderful man by the name of William Brown, who worked at Raytheon Corporation back in the 1950s, invented a device known as a rectifying antenna. It's basically a small antenna, looks like a T, and at the the base of the T or inside the, the, the two halves of the base of the T, there's a single diode. 
And this, this antenna takes an incoming radio wave and converts it into direct current. And so what the receiver would look like on Earth for a solar power satellite transmission would look like a, a large mesh antenna covered with these small T's, these small rectifying antennas. Um, so it would be a large mesh, would be up above the ground. Uh, when you were underneath of it, the, you'd see sunlight and sky and clouds overhead. Uh, but you'd also see this mesh, sort of like being in a pergola in your backyard, but made of wire, like a chain-link fence, cyclone fencing. Uh, and on top of the fencing, there would be these T's, the, the individual antennas of the uh, rectifying antenna, the rectenna. Um, the, the total area, normally, because it is hot, lots of power, but at low intensity, would be on the order of uh, three or four miles across. The antenna would be flat, and it would be up above your head uh, by, say, um, uh, 15 or 20 feet. So you, underneath, you could have farmlands, you could have desert, it could be over ocean um, or offshore, and um, uh, and it would be about uh, four miles or so in diameter. And this power coming down, I read from the write-up, is not strong. So it would not hurt birds, it would not hurt insects, it would not hurt anything, any creature that we can imagine getting in the way, the way solar panels or windmills do. Yeah, so the, the, um, the um, peak power intensity at the very center of the receiver would be 200 watts or so per square meter. A meter is a little bit larger than a yard, so a square yard, a little bit larger than a square yard. Um, summer sunlight, like uh, you went out on a, on a clear summer day and looked at the sun and you were in the Sahara Desert, you'd see about a 1,000 watts per square meter um, in the, um, in the, at the peak of the rectenna. A bird flying through might experience maybe 200 watts, so about 20%, one-fifth of sunlight's energy. And it's very long wavelengths. It can't, uh, it cannot cause any damage. It, uh, it, birds won't be set on fire. Insects can just fly right through. And on the edges of the edges of the beam, it would be down around, um, two watts. So about 1% of the center. David, you have a question. John, would you store the power when it's nighttime where the rectenna is located or does it need to have sunlight all the time? How does that work at nighttime? So the um, solar power satellite uh, in a geostationary Earth orbit is going to see the sun 99.95% of the year. Uh, so you don't, it, it can provide the energy from space 24-7, 365. However, in the spring, right around uh, March 20th, and in the fall, right around September 20th, there are these things called the, the equinoxes. And that's when the Earth and the Sun line up with geostationary Earth orbit. And for, a, for about a maximum of about an hour, a little more, the satellite would be in the shadow of the Earth at midnight on that day. And a little bit less, a little bit less, a little bit less during the preceding week and the following week. So during the equinox, you do have to have a battery, but the battery is only for about an hour, a little longer. 
and it would be at midnight when the demand for power is at a minimum. And the rest of the year, 99.95% of the year, you can have power whenever you want it. Rain or shine, winter or summer, uh, whenever. Gigawatts. Or- what is the estimate of what you could produce with one satellite of gigawatts for uh, eager customers? So between 1,000 and 2,000 megawatts, between 1 and 2 gigawatts. And, and that would represent between uh, 1 and 2 million homes. I see. So we're looking at a constellation then of sun-catching satellites that would be in geosynchronous orbit. And just as said, I'm trying to think of them as Starlink, the constellation that passes over my head for Internet. That's what it would look like for... Well, except, except of course, much farther away and much larger. And, and whereas the constellation of Starlink satellites is moving across the sky constantly, these would be fixed in the sky because they'd be in a geostationary Earth orbit. They would just, when you looked at them, the apparent uh, location in space in the sky would always be the same. David? And so this sounds like the ultimate Green New Deal source of energy for the grid, yet the U.S. government is not very supportive of it. Some other governments are. Why is it not catching on other than in commercial space markets and advocates and conference people that you talk with and that I talk with? Well, back in the day, this was initially studied in the 1970s, and and using the technologies of the mid-1970s, think about where computers were. You know, like a, an, an 8-bit computer was a, mar- was a marvel. Uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, the TRS-80, the first, you know, portable uh, computer, personal computer, hadn't even been developed yet. Uh, the technologies didn't permit automation or advanced robotics. Materials were still very heavy. <clears throat> the construction infrastructure for these systems was designed in concept and and was projected to be to cost hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars in 1979 and because of these to get to the first kilowatt hour because of these massive costs at that time the project in the US was canceled and uh, it's only been more recently that um, with advances in solid-state electronics, that back in the 1970s, it would have all been done with vacuum tubes. Remember old-style TVs with the vacuum tubes glowing in the back? Now it's all solid-state and flat screen, and none of that was true in the mid-1970s. It was all, you know, astronauts with torches and wrenches. Now you can do it with uh, automation and um, uh, robotics and modular systems and plug-and-play but there's many, many people in the American space program, and many of them at NASA, who remember very well the way it used to be. And it's, it's very hard to get out of what you know well when you are a senior person in your field. Um, I, I believe that you've talked before about the cost of access to space, dollars per kilogram. Right. I was... I was at NASA in the 1990s when the reusable launch vehicle program was was there to try to pursue that. And and NASA came to a conclusion in the early 2000s that lowering the cost of launch was impossible. That lower cost launch was for the indefinite future 
And all we could try to do was build heavy lift launch to do our exploration missions. And it wasn't until the private sector, uh, SpaceX, Blue Origin, and others, started actually building low-cost reusable launchers that suddenly it became a fact. And that's, that's actually been only nine years ago that the first reusable booster flew, the Falcon 9 reusable, and now it's a, it's a matter of fact. Everybody knows low-cost launch is not only achievable, it's inevitable. Um, the same thing, I think, is, is true with space solar power. There's so many years of experience that have educated people to know that space solar power is expensive because it would have been in 1980. John Mankins is the author of The Case for Space Solar Power. It's available at Amazon right now. David Livingston, Dr. Space of the Space Show. John has agreed to play a game with us now when we come back. We're going to give him an unlimited budget, and that means as many starships and super heavies as he wants. And we're going to build the future. This is CBS Eye of the World, Hotel Mars, Episode N. I'm John Bash. John Batsch was my colleague and friend and co-host and co-pilot, David Livingston, the Dr. Space of the Space Show. And we're hosting John Mankins, the author of The Case for Space Solar Power, about to have a second edition. This is visionary stuff that once was seen as too expensive. But now, an unlimited budget, Mr. Mankins, and as many starships and super heavies as you want. So what are you going to build? What's your... What's your expectation? When can you get this done, John? Um, with an unlimited budget, within 36 months, I would uh, form a company. I would hire a whole bunch of folks around the world, and I would start manufacturing these modular pieces of space solar power satellites uh, in lots of competing lines of attack to solve problems quickly. First demo would be about a megawatt in about 36 months. Within about 48 to 60 months, about four or five years, there'd be a 10 megawatt version of this platform in a middle earth orbit, operational and demonstrating power delivery to uh, markets around the world. We start selling, uh, laying out the, uh, the marketing rights and the, the landing rights all over the world, uh, form subsidiary companies to build pieces around the world. Can't be a U.S. play only. Got to be uh, a global endeavor if it's going to be global power, global green energy. And within eight to ten years, the first gigawatt power system would be on orbit. Would cost oh about eight ten billion dollars. Uh, and then you'd start ramping up. By mid-century, uh, uh, with my unlimited budget, um, which I wouldn't need much of after the first uh, 15 years, because these satellites are going to be incredibly profitable. So I would I would look to pay down uh, that. I'll borrow that unlimited budget. I won't take it as a grant. And I'll pay it all back within 30 years. It's a long-term grant, but it, I'd pay it all back. Uh, and by mid-century, there would be hundreds of these satellites providing power in uh, combination with terrestrial solar and terrestrial wind in markets all over the planet. David, you have a question. Uh-huh. Um, with your unlimited budget, 
NASA still thinks it's too costly. They just said so in a recent report. Can you overcome the the feelings, the thoughts, the reports from NASA, and you do this plan with exclusive private sector money, or do you need to partner with government, including our governments, to make it happen? Oh, I, I, there are so many there are so many regulatory hurdles that you have to overcome. I think that governments have to be partners in making this happen. But I think the great and and it's always good to have government money early um, because that provides some some credibility. It would be best if it was U.S. government, but the Japanese are already investing. The European Space Agency is already investing. South Korea is investing. China is investing big. Um, so there's lots of government money out there, um, but I have I have no concern about the really high numbers that were reported by NASA recently, because those really high numbers are a consequence of really bad assumptions. So they they assumed that Starship was never going to be peak, that Starship would always be super expensive. They assumed that you had to use eight starships to launch each payload. And they assumed that you had to throw away a starship every time you launch a payload. And, 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 and then. So I'm, I'm not concerned about those numbers because I know those numbers are the basis, are, are based on really bad assumptions. It would appear from your new book, John, looking at the graphics, that you have several designs for the satellites themselves. You're still entertaining more and new innovation. Is that correct? Always, always. I, I've, uh, since I created this uh, concept, the SPS Alpha, solar power satellite, by means of arbitrarily large array, I have gone through five different iterations of my own concept. So I, I'm constantly trying to improve it. And these designs, they're all very attractive, all very practical. Uh, you need to put them in in orbit and see what works. That's why, that's why he said you're going to start with beta. Yep, absolutely. David, why hasn't this happened yet, David? I'm asking, I'm putting Dr. Space on the line. John says it's cost. Is it also what John says, imagination, David? Is that it? No, I don't think it's imagination. I, I think it's people wedded to old ideologies and concepts that, that aren't, Valid. For example, environmentalists condemn rocket launches as destroying the atmosphere right. and hurting the Earth. And it, I used to go to space conferences, and they would say the industrial capacity to do the number of space launches to do one little bit of a, an SSP system, we don't have those kinds of launches. Well, with SpaceX and yeah. with New Glenn coming on the market, that's not true anymore. And people don't get off their old horses very easily. The Case for Space Solar Power, available at Amazon. John Mankins is the author. David Livingston, Dr. Space, Hotel Mars. I'm John Batchelor.